from the Western Riverside Council of Governments. I'm Rachel Singer, and this is CODcast. At its root, public engagement seeks to better engage the community to achieve long-term and sustainable outcomes, processes, relationships, and decision-making. But what does this actually look like? And how can Western Riverside County implement best practices in public engagement as we continue to grow exponentially? Today, to help us understand how to implement effective public engagement, we are pleased to welcome Ashley Lavisher, Executive Director at the Davenport Institute for Public Engagement at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. So Ashley, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So can you tell me just a little bit about how you got to where you are? Yeah, it's been interesting when I realized that I'm now in a position where occasionally younger women will ask me for career advice because my career advice is kind of push on the doors and see what opens. Um, My intro to city government was back when I was in college. I was an intern for a city that will remain nameless because I will reference back to it. Um, (laughs) But I was in the city manager's office and working really closely with the public information officer. And shortly after I graduated from college, she took another position and they had a period of time with no PIO. And so the assistant CM came to me and was like, we can't actually make you interim PIO because you have zero experience, but can we make you communication specialist, give you a bit of a raise and just let you run with this for a while? So I was kind of thrown into the fire in that sense. Um, Got a lot of experience of what I would say is kind of the standard way that local governments often think of engagement. A lot of marketing, a lot of advocacy, a lot of telling our story, not a lot of actually inviting conversation. But that was my first intro to public engagement. And then from there, or to local government, from there, I took a kind of circuitous route. I went to DC for a while. I thought I wanted to work on the Hill, got to DC, realized I did not want to work on the (laughs) Hill very quickly. Uh, Went back for my master's degree in public policy at Pepperdine, actually. And that was where I became much more interested in local issues. I mean, I'd worked for the city before, but it had been, you know, first job out of college. I thought that I wanted to be in D.C. and then really came back and and worked, got more familiar with local government in grad school. After I graduated from grad school, it was 2009, so it was the bottom of the recession. Mm -hmm. I knew no city was going to hire me, Mm -hmm. none of the nonprofits I'd thought about working for. So I ended up getting an emergency teaching credential and teaching middle school for a year. And that was interesting. I was in a failing, failing public school. It actually failed the year that I was there. And I think that did two things that have really impacted my career. One, it made facilitation skills always seem easy. I'm fine. No crowd of adults is as intimidating as 26 (laughs) middle schoolers. Um, But then the other thing that it really did was it opened my eyes to how little we ask the people that are impacted by decisions about those decisions. So we were restructuring an entire school because it was failing and did very little talking to the parents or the community about what this could or should look like. Um, So I think that set me up for when a professor from from Pepperdine called and said, hey, have you heard of this? At the time it was called Common Sense California. 
Um, they're coming on board at Pepperdine. They're going to be this, this think and do tank that's really focused on public engagement, which I didn't know of at the time as its own thing to think mm-hmm. of. This was in 2010. Um, I thought, yeah, let's, let's find out more about this. Interviewed and, and jumped on board and found in the work that the Davenport Institute was doing the answer to both what had kind of frustrated me in my initial job of we're just selling things. We're not really we're not really going to the people and getting their input. Mm -hmm. Um, And also some of what I had seen lacking in my work in the school. So it's been really exciting to grow up with the Institute. I've been executive director there for about three and a half years now. Mm -hmm. And just to get to work with local governments on helping them do a better job of really engaging resident voices and the policies that impact them in their day-to-day lives. So jumping a little bit more into just the subject matter of public engagement, can you just talk a little bit about what legitimate public engagement, what that really looks like? Yeah. So I think it's easiest to start by talking about what it isn't. And so going back to kind of my initial uh, experience in the public information office, a lot of times when we talk about public engagement, we're really thinking more in terms of either public relations, which has that kind of marketing component to it, um, or we're talking about helping the public understand what we do, know how government functions, or we're talking about advocacy. You know, we need to pass a sales tax or we need to pass um, a, a measure of some sort. How do we get people on board? How do we help them understand that this is what needs to happen? All of those are really important things. So I don't in any way want to minimize the importance of those things, but that but they're separate. Um, helping the public understand what's going on is really how well, how transparent are we being and how are we doing our civics education? Mm-hmm. The marketing and advocacy, you know, we should be telling our stories and we should be telling them well. And sometimes there are decisions that just need to be made. Um, I think I was part of the, the Woosley fire last year out in the Malibu area. And like, mm-hmm. that's definitely not decisions you want being made by the public. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are times where policies are going to impact the way that people live and where there's a cultural component to those policies. So when I talk about public engagement um, being legitimate, what I mean is that it's really incorporating either public concerns or public ideas or public priorities into the decision-making process so that the outcome, the actual policy, looks different after the public input than it did before. Maybe not radically different, um, but but that there's an, a real impact on that. And then I would say the other thing is to be legitimate, engagement has to be both inclusive and authentic. So it needs to represent the diversity of the community that you're in. We, I know a lot of cities struggle with, we're always getting the same 15 people to mm-hmm. our city council meeting or maybe 50 people. Um, so it's reaching beyond those hyper-engaged voices to say, what does the what do the normal people in our communities <laughs> think? Um, and is it authentic? Are we giving them opportunities to talk to each other, to put diverse viewpoints together in a way that encourages them to wrestle with trade-offs? I think a lot of times local government staff and officials recognize all of the trade-offs that they're working with. Um, and then someone coming in from the public has their opinion of what the best idea is and has no idea about those trade-offs. So being able to put people in conversation with each other to where they're seeing, oh, there are a lot of different aspects of play. I individually don't represent the voice of all of the people in the mm-hmm. city. 
um, and engaging those voices with each other is where you get to the really meaningful public engagement. Totally. And so this that kind of speaks to just a more basic question that I have, which is why involve citizens in this policymaking process? Yeah, which is a great question because especially if we've had bad experiences in attempting to engage the public, there's pretty legitimate reasons just to be like, eh, maybe not push that button, maybe not open that can of worms. I think there's two two buckets that I would point to. One are the reasons that we need to engage because the public expects to be engaged and will be engaged. And I think that's becoming more of a thing now. We have technology. People are much more have much more access to information, good and bad information, than they ever had before. And they also are more used to being able to give their feedback. You know, we all have Yelp or we use Uber or Airbnb or all these places where we're really relying on each other's feedback. Um, I think there's other challenges. Local governments, even as we've come out of a recession, local governments continue to deal with really tight budgets. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a lot of mandated spending as well as the ongoing challenges with, with pension obligations. And that means that there's really difficult trade-offs that need to be made. And you don't want to end up in a position where you're you're either cutting drastic services or possibly facing bankruptcy with your public having no idea what's going on or no voice in, mm-hmm. in kind of saying what those are. And then I think the other thing is, is increased diversity. We have a lot more interests and we don't always know what they are. Um, if if we were a very if we were living in very homogenous communities where everyone's sort of the same race, ethnicity, socioeconomic makeup, education level, sure, maybe maybe you could make some assumptions. I still think it would be dangerous, but you could make some assumptions about what their priorities were. But as we become increasingly diverse, you're really dealing with cross-cultural communications, not just racially and ethnically, but in a whole bunch of different ways. And, and being able to navigate that requires knowing what those interests are. And then I would say on a more positive note, why we should is that I do think it makes for better policy. And I think local government staff, um, especially those who've been through MPP, MPA programs, have a lot of good training in the expertise of government. They know how to think about the resources. Um, They know how to think about the regulatory world in which they're making decisions. And we're getting better and better at thinking about and measuring efficacy. But often what's still left out of that picture is the question of history and culture. And we can have something that looks very efficient, that fits within the needs of our, of our budget or human resource uh, limitations that, that's really within our mandate, that's not going to be legally challenged. And yet if it butts up against uh, the culture of the community in which we're working, it can blow apart. Um, and we are often called in after that's been the case, where something that seemed like it wasn't going to be controversial mm-hmm. hit some historic button, whether it's, I, I think we see that sometimes with police community relation things. Um, but we also see it with things like water issues, when something that might seem pretty straightforward has a historic root of injustice of water being taken or, or given in, in, in what feel like illegitimate ways. Um, so it can it can reach into a lot of different issues, but I think being able to engage with those history, with the cultures, mm-hmm. and often those are you know histories and cultures. Not we're not dealing with just one at this point. Right. Um, if we don't do that, we're not going to have sustainable sustainable solutions. 
And then I guess a third um, is that the, the issues we're facing today are so challenging, mm-hmm. whether we're looking at climate, housing, resiliency, disaster preparedness, disaster response, you know, mass shootings, all of these really big issues are not things that a local government can just push a button and fix mm-hmm. or even bring all their resources to the table and fix. They really require um, building those relationships and partnering outside of government to address these wicked problems. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, so with that, then, what do you think is effective public engagement? Like, what does that look like? And does social media, the infamous social media, does infamous that have a role media. in it all? I often tell people if I had the right answer to the social media <laughs> challenge, I would just change the world and everything would be fine. I do think it has a role to play, and I'll get to that. I think really effective engagement and I can spend hours talking about effective engagement. We have a half day, a one day, a three day training <laughs> on all of these things. Um, but I will say that I'll, I'll highlight a few things that I think really lead to good engagement. One is that the purpose of engagement is clearly defined internally before we ever go out to the public. So I think a lot of times we say, or maybe council tells us or our board tells us, um, we should go to the public on this. Okay, what kind of feedback are we looking for? Um, do we have a sense of the type of feedback that's going to help inform this process? Are we asking them to choose between two painful choices? Are we asking what their priorities are? Are we asking what their concerns are and how maybe as we shape this policy, we can address some of those concerns? There's a whole bunch of different things we might mean by public engagement, and we often don't take the time to sit down and say, what is it that we're actually asking people for? Mm -hmm. In very limited... um, there are very limited circumstances where we're actually asking the public to make a full policy decision. Um, most of the time we're looking for some specific type of input that will shape the decision that's being made. Uh, and taking the time to really say, what is the what is it that we're asking for? And then matching that with a process that's appropriate to it. So again, if you're if you're really saying, you know, we're facing a water shortage, we can invest a lot of money into infrastructure to collect runoff, and that's going to be expensive. Are you willing to pay for it? Or are you willing to water your lawn once a month or switch to, to some more drought resistant? If, if it's kind of that type of thing, where it's like, here are two ways of getting to this, which will fit with our culture, that might be something where a really good survey process is sufficient. But if you're asking people, um, for solutions around housing or for solutions around, um, or even for priorities whenever we're looking at visioning or those kinds of things. Um, that goes back to where you really need to put the diversity of voices in conversation with each other. So you're not going to have, well, we often do have town hall meetings or, or public meetings, but three minutes in a microphone is the worst possible way you could address those situations. Because if I'm coming and I know I have my three minutes, the whole time the person before me is speaking, I'm thinking about what am I going to say when I have the microphone? And the minute I'm done speaking, I just feel relieved that I don't have to talk anymore and I'm tuning out <laughs> who's coming after me. So being able to create spaces where people can have conversations in smaller groups and then maybe report out to a larger group where it's less intimidating, where they're they're going to be more likely to voice what they see as a dissenting opinion. Mm-hmm. Um but they're also going to be more likely to look for other opinions. If one person is talking a lot, they'll say, okay, who else haven't we heard from? Um, so 
figuring out how to develop your process Mm -hmm. in a way that fits with that purpose. And again, we have very long trainings on that. But I think in general, anytime you're doing anything besides just informing the public, again, like the disaster response example of you need to know this, Mm -hmm. it really should involve participants talking to each other, not just to the decision makers. Staff and elected officials should be asking the right questions um, and then listening to the answers, not answering questions in front of the room. There might be a brief period of that where you're providing some information, but the meat of the time should be, we're listening to you, we're trying to gather this input. And then listening and learning. Um, And then, and I think that this is a huge piece of good engagement that we miss, is closing the loop. Because a lot of times we actually take... I've worked with so many cities that do a really good job, actually, of taking resident concerns, of taking these conversations that happen, of actually having them impact the policy. But then they never say, oh, by the way, we heard from you. We couldn't do exactly the thing that you said, but your input made us change it in this way. Um, People are pretty receptive to that, and we often just fail to tell them. And I think that can you know, the, the, that initial engagement may be effective enough, but it, it's going to make it very tricky to build trust to continue moving forward. Yeah. Um, and then I would say the other kind of pitfall is not bringing the decision makers on board early enough. So a lot of times it's staff who are running engagement processes. Mm-hmm. They may end up hearing from hundreds of people across a community. Then they create a nice little report. They summarize it to council and then council in or the board or whoever is making the decision in their public meeting hears from 20 angry people who show up mm-hmm. who may be completely different voices than the 100 voices you've heard from. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, if they haven't been really included in that process and helped to really hear those voices as you go along, the in-person voices can drown out mm-hmm. the larger engagement. So I think that's another big challenge is making sure. Totally that they're on board. And then in relations to the social media questions, I see social media as kind of traditional to our parallel process. So if you think of, or to, I said that the wrong way around, parallel to our traditional process. Um, If you think of city council where you have three minutes in a microphone and, and people are getting up and talking, Facebook operates a lot the same way. It's kind of, I put my opinion out into the void. I may or may not respond to someone else's opinion, but it's not really wrestling. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be really challenging because in, it can heat up in the same way. And just because of the scale of it, it can go much quicker into kind of places that no one really wants to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, if I had a if I had a solution to that, <laughs> I'd probably be doing different things than I'm doing now. But I don't have that solution. But I do think that where it can help is it can provide a bit of a pulse into the community. So it can give local governments a sense of where there might need to be a bit more attention and engagement done. I don't think what happens on social media is engagement, but it can say, oh, wow, this feels like a heated issue. Maybe we should think about how to have a good conversation on this. Mm -hmm. Um, It can help engage different people so you can push info out. Um, And it can help you reach people for other processes, whether it's a better online process or or an in-person engagement. You can do targeted Facebook posts, for instance, to reach Mm -hmm. your younger population who might otherwise never hear about it. Yeah, that's a really interesting and enlightening perspective. I think that even what you said, I mean, everything that you said really seems like it's driving towards the point of this conversation. What I found really compelling was the idea of like, 
participants and residents interacting with other residents and that therefore generates some level of ownership in the community of like, this is what we want to move forward to. Um, and then social media playing more of the supportive role and like leveraging it as a platform, not as the main driver for public engagement. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I do think until we solve the sort of incivility on social media, which again is not a local <laughs> issue, right? We're uh-huh. hearing that nationally. That's right. It's a huge issue. Until we figure out what's going on there, I think some of my advice for local staff and officials is just to develop a bit of a thick skin in looking at that. Like Again, find the pain points and figure out how you have more productive conversations, mm-hmm. but while being responsive, while making sure you're getting information out, don't necessarily assume that you know, 50 angry Facebook posts means that everyone in the world hates you Mm -hmm. because part of that is just who is on there and how we're Mm -hmm. trained to interact on social media. Totally. Yeah. That's a great piece of advice. So um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, especially regarding just the Facebook aspects of getting the 50 responses that are super negative. Mm-hmm. Um, but there just seems to be this growing level of skepticism around all things pertaining to government. So how would you recommend rebuilding that trust with constituents to that so that they feel actually welcome to the table to have that conversation? The answers for that one, I think there's kind of the broad answer that applies to everyone And then some of it is knowing your own history and background. So if there are particular reasons for mistrust in your community, thinking about who to build partnerships with. Um, For instance, the city of Malibu um, has been interested in, in doing some more resident engagement around resiliency. And they came to us, and that was one position where I'm like, well, Pepperdine kind of got some flack for how we handled the fire. You might want someone else to work with on this. Um, so if there are particular issues where trust has been damaged, knowing kind of how do we get people on board who are more trustworthy than we are, (laughs) but where there's not those particular issues, I think we are facing an era of mistrust. And it's interesting because if you look at the data, people still trust their local governments more than any other level of government. But it doesn't feel like that, (laughs) especially when you're in the city council meetings, um, And I was talking to one former mayor who posited, and I think think there's some truth to this, people aren't necessarily angry at their local governments. They're kind of angry at government in general, but local government is your closest punching bag. Mm -hmm. So I think a piece of rebuilding trust is, is being willing to take some of that, being willing to have opportunities for people to just express the emotion. Um, And then I think beyond that, Continuing to invite people and think of new and creative ways to do processes. So your usual suspects may be the ones who show up the first time. You might not have a lot of diversity of voice in the room, but if the people who are the usual suspects come and they don't have their usual experience, that can start to change your relationship with those people. And Mm -hmm. often, if you can change that relationship, those people become ambassadors Mm -hmm. to other people. Um, Again, going back to kind of what I said about social media, a lot of this is about relationships. I think people today are really hungry for community. They're really hungry for relationships. So thinking about how we incorporate some of that into our engagement, how do we make this a little bit of fun? Mm -hmm. How do we provide food? Or how how do we occasionally do things where we're not really asking for any input? We're just 
getting to know each other and building mm-hmm. relationships. Um, the city manager of Grover Beach is on my board and they had a potluck, legitimately just a community potluck. People, he said he wasn't sure if anyone was going to bring food and then people came and just brought their food. And he said that was not, they have other engagement processes they're doing, but that was just let's meet face to face and get to know each other. So thinking about ways of doing that. And then going back to something that I've already said, just always making sure we close the loop Mm -hmm. when we do get that feedback, because I think a lot of governments actually have good stories to tell and forget to tell them. (laughs) You know, we do all these great engagements and then we don't say, oh, and by the way, this is how your feedback, whether we did what you wanted us to do or not, maybe we couldn't do any of the things you asked, but if so, here are the reasons we couldn't do, we heard what you asked and here are the reasons we couldn't do them. Mm -hmm. Or here's the one step that we took toward doing it. Just being able to feed that back can start building trust. And I think it's a long process. So I think also being patient, Mm -hmm. just knowing it's not going, there's so much mistrust, so much that doesn't come from our local governments at all. That's that's broader cultural issues. We're not going to rebuild that mm-hmm. in one engagement process. So just have grace for yourself and your constituents and, and know that mm-hmm. and keep trying. Yeah, definitely. And I think that what you said too, it's, it's a process to rebuild that trust. At the end of the day, it is that relationship and that trust issue. And so that isn't going to change overnight. So what, what practically speaking, kind of looking forward for all of the constituents that are listening to this podcast, what are three pieces of advice that you would provide to those working in the public sector? So in thinking about this, it's always fun to have a list of three. <laughs> um, but I think for people who, you know, especially if this is their first introduction to really thinking through some of these challenges, I would say my first piece of advice would be not to underestimate the power of a small change. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, if you've been to something on public engagement at a conference or you've seen some of the really innovative uh, placemaking processes out there or some of the really creative gamification techniques or these online platforms or all of these things, it can feel a little overwhelming. And I think Starting with something, you know, we did a process um, in one city where all that we really, it was a planning process. We were talking with, uh, it was a planning commission meeting. There were developers and there were residents in the room. And the major change that we made was just to not have the planning commission up on the dais. We sat them over on the side, kind of behind people where they could listen. And then we had a facilitator it was still a whole group conversation passing microphones around, but we had people talk to each other in a horseshoe. We didn't establish a time limit for people, but no one really spoke that long. Mm-hmm. And that was a tiny adjustment. You know, that was a, an adjustment in the way we set up the chairs and mm-hmm. where we put the people who were decision makers. So think about making small changes. Almost any small change is going to be better than our typical town hall meeting experience. Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid of small changes and recognize that they matter. I think the second piece of advice is to take small risks and evaluate them. So know going in, what would success look like for us? And I would encourage people not to think of success initially in terms of numbers. Um, Because if you're just getting started on this road, especially if there's been a history of mistrust in your community, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get 
hundreds of people out to these meetings. But if you can say, are there a few faces, you know, our goal for this meeting is that there's going to be 10 people that we've never seen before, or there's going to be five people we've never seen before, or we're going to uh, partner with the local uh, Latino church and we're going to try to see a few leaders from there. You know, what does success look like for you at this moment? we're going to have a meeting that doesn't end with people yelling at each other. Like it could be very small steps, but really to say, we're going to try this. We're going to define success for ourselves. And then as soon as this is done, we're going to look at it and say, okay, what went well? What didn't go well? How might, based on what didn't go well, how might we adjust Mm -hmm. next time? So I've been asked a few times to help local governments come up with public engagement policies And I'm fairly hesitant to do that. I try to tell them, like, let's make a toolkit or let's develop a strategy. Let's do something because I think this is very iterative and it needs to be. And you need to recognize that you're going to try something that doesn't work for your community. The same thing's not going to work everywhere. Mm -hmm. So being willing to kind of take on those small failures and then adjust and, and measure progress incrementally, not assume that you're going to have a perfect process your first Mm -hmm. time out. And then I think the third piece of advice is thinking about finding colleagues who are doing this work beyond your own organization and beyond your own job title. One of the things, we have a professional certificate in public engagement that's a three-day long deep dive into this topic. And one of the things that amazes me is the diversity of titles that we get in the room. So there's some people who are coming, like I did, from the public information side. There's a lot of people coming from the planning side. There's a few people whose title actually reflects, you know, chief engagement officer or something. There's a lot of people who are management analysts in the city manager's office or, you know, in charge of diversity or in charge of housing mm-hmm. development or, or whatever. There's so many different places, homelessness task force. So thinking who is trying to engage the public and recognizing they may not be, they may not have your job title, they may not be in the same department as you, they may not be in the same agency, but beginning to build a network, because I think what we're talking about here really is culture change. Um, I think some resources for that are places like WRCOG, where you have different governments um, that are associated with each other. Davenport Institute has resources in that direction. Um, The Emerging Local Government Leaders Network is doing a lot of work around some of these issues and and tends to draw people who are thinking more creatively and innovatively. And then just some of our regular, you know, Cal ICMA or MMA SC or some of the different regional organizations can be good sources of this, but really trying to build your support system so that when something goes south, you can you can vent to someone who's not the public <laughs> and you can say, what can I do differently next time? Totally. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and just sharing your insight on the topic. Um, I think especially as the Western Riverside County is just projected to grow exponentially in the next couple of years. We really do want to be good advocates and representatives of our residents and businesses. And so this is a really practical podcast for us. And so thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks. The Western Riverside Council of Governments, also known as WRCOG, exists to unify the Western Riverside County so that it can speak with a collective voice on important issues that affect its members. For more information on WRCOG and the CogCast, please visit us at www.wrcog.us.